Uh, this, is, uh, this is week nine of our journey with Jesus through Mark's gospel. We've covered or we've looked at 43 incidents. And so by now you would have expected James and John and the other disciples to know what it meant and what it looked like and what it sounded like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. They'd heard it explained often enough. They'd seen it demonstrated on a regular basis. But what we're about to discover is they still didn't quite get it. In fact, what they said and what they did on certain occasions almost, almost denied the reality of their faith. Now, before I'm too hard on them, let me just say a couple of things by way of introduction. First of all, I have been a Christian or I have been a disciple of Jesus Christ for years. But I have lost count of the number of times I say things, think things, do things and miss things that reveal that convey, that indicate that I still don't quite get it a lot of the time. And secondly, as someone who's been involved in church leadership for quite some time now, I am constantly amazed and disappointed and frustrated, if I'm really honest, by the choices, the words, the actions and the attitudes of some people who claim to follow Jesus. It seems that lots of us, as I say, self-included, still don't quite get it. And so whenever I come to a chapter like Mark 10, and whenever I look at the lives of the original disciples, I actually find comfort. And I know I've said this before. These first disciples, they heard what Jesus said. They saw what Jesus did. They listened as Jesus explained it to them, but they still messed up. They still blew it. They still missed the point time and time again. But before I find too much comfort in that, and before I use them as an excuse for my own inability to get it, let's not forget that they were hearing this, that they were seeing a lot of this for the very first time. This was brand new. This was different. This was revolutionary. This was pre-cross, pre-resurrection, whereas I... Standing here today, have heard the words and the teaching of Jesus for years in service after service after service, as well as on my own. I live in the wake of the cross, in the wake of the resurrection. And so, what is my excuse for constantly missing it? If you have a Bible, and hopefully you do at least have a copy of a pew Bible, let me just take you to this incident, the first one we're going to look at this morning. Incident 44 begins at verse 13 in Mark 10, page 1014, as Trevor said. Mark doesn't tell us where this actually happened. And although this event is generally seen as a deeply moving event, which it is, there is a really sad dimension to it. There's a really unfortunate aspect to what takes place in this undisclosed location. As we have journeyed with Jesus, one of the things we've discovered in these past eight weeks is that he has a real heart for kids. Just a chapter ago, if you were here last week, you will have encountered Jesus cradling a little boy, a little kid in his arms, and speaking affectionately as to how we are to welcome little kids in his name and here in mark 10 we find people and they're probably their parents 
But they're bringing their sons and their daughters to Jesus. And they're asking Jesus, Jesus, will you please touch them? Because by now the reputation of Jesus had gone before him. And so to have this unique and this distinctly different miracle worker touch and bless your kids was a godsend. And so Jesus embraces these little kids and he places his hands on them and he blesses them. But he also confirms, and this would have been a really radical idea and concept, but he confirmed that the kingdom of God belongs to kids like these. And that would have sent shockwaves through the ranks of people listening in on this. Because to say that was strange, because surely kingdoms belong to the powerful, not the vulnerable. They belong to the strong, not the weak. They belong to the serious, not the playful. And so what becomes apparent, or what becomes obvious, is that the kingdom of God was and is fundamentally different to the kingdoms of this world. Not just fundamentally different, but radically different. But Jesus didn't just stop there because this was another great teaching opportunity. And Jesus loved these sort of teaching opportunities. And so he clarifies the admissions criteria to this kingdom. And he says that unless you receive it like a little child, you'll be refused entry. Well, what does that mean? Well, different people have different opinions on this one. But let me ask you a question. How do little kids receive anything? How do little kids receive anything generally my experience is they receive everything with open arms kids are great receivers they're not very good givers but they receive easily you hold out a birthday or a christmas present to a little kid and they cannot and often will not wait to rip off the wrapping but it's funny how as you get older when somebody hands you a gift what do you do you say oh no you shouldn't have or you really shouldn't have bothered Do you know, I've never heard a little kid say that. And therefore, I believe that one aspect of what Jesus is expressing in these defining moments is that we need, we need to receive the kingdom of God in a similar vein. We need to receive the kingdom of God with open arms. We need to receive the kingdom of God uncritically. And we need to receive the kingdom of God with great expectation as to what lies therein. And so one of the challenges we face as we get older is how do we rediscover a child's ability, a childlike, not a childish, but a child's ability to receive the kingdom of God. It is so important that we work that through. This is a deeply moving and an interesting incident, but some of you will have noticed that I missed a bit. That I've sort of missed what for me is the sad and the disappointing and the unfortunate dimension of this story. And it's a dimension that almost beggars belief. Because you read in verse 13 that parents brought their kids to Jesus and get this. The disciples rebuked them. Remember, it's only a chapter ago that Jesus confronts these disciples about their argument over who is the greatest. And as he takes that little kid and as he takes that little boy and he cradles him in his arms, he says to the disciples, whoever welcomes me or welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. So what is going on a chapter later? Was it that they didn't hear Jesus properly or was it that they heard him but they didn't listen to him? Because there is a world of difference between a rebuke and a welcome. And so Mark, and it's only Mark who records this, he actually tells us that Jesus was indignant, and it's a strong word. And the Greek word, as I understand it, means to feel violently irritated. And I don't know if you think that is how Jesus feels sometimes whenever we don't get it. 
But he's indignant. And he feels violently irritated at these guys. But again, before I'm too hard on them, I found myself this week asking a very direct question. As I reflected on this. David, what have you done this week? What have you said this week? What have you thought this week that has contradicted the teaching of Jesus? To move on, the next incident is a familiar story and it's layered with so many lessons at so many levels. And this this guy runs up to Jesus. Matthew tells us he was young. Luke says he was a ruler. Matthew, Mark and Luke tell, tell us he was rich. So on the surface... Here was someone with a fair bit going for him. Youth was on his side, money was in the bank, power was at his fingertips. He was a walking success story by anybody's standards. But it seems something wasn't quite right. There was still a gap in his life. There was still something missing. He was still hungry. He was still searching. He was still restless. He still hadn't found what he was looking for. And so he asks a question. But before we look at the question, notice how he approaches and how he addresses Jesus. Verse 17, it says, He fell on his knees before him and he said, Good teacher, that's humility, that's recognition, that's respect. And that is always, always the way we must approach and address Jesus. And so the question comes, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a brilliant question. It's a highly significant question. It's a very revealing question. Because here was a young man who could purchase anything. Here was a young man who could afford whatever he wanted. There was nothing that he could have. He thought to himself that money couldn't buy. And yet, there's something, something that he can't actually write a check for can't actually dig into his pocket and pay for and it frustrates him and so he says what must I do not to earn it not to buy it he says what must I do to inherit eternal life you see for this young man life had been pretty good and was pretty good in the here and now but he was keen to discover how can I get the best of both worlds how do I get the best in this life but I actually would really like the best in the life that is to come And Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, as we have constantly discovered throughout this series, he answers a question by asking a question. And he says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? And then Jesus restates the basic commandments that every Jew would have known, or at least he states some of them. And I want you to notice the ones he misses out. So Jesus starts with a list. It's in verse 19. He begins with commandments number six to nine about murder, adultery, theft, and perjury. And then he adds an extra one. I don't know if you noticed that. He says, don't defraud. Where did that one come from? And then he goes back to number five, honor your parents. So he omits one to four. He omits the idea of putting God first, no idols, not taking God's name in vain on Sabbath. And he omits number 10, covetousness. And I find that absolutely fascinating. One of the things I have I've loved as we've embarked on this series is that you find yourself confronted with aspects of stories that you thought you knew and then realized, hang on, I've never noticed that before. Well, this is one of those occasions for me. Why, why those, Jesus? Why not those? And the man replies, teacher, I have kept these since I was a boy. So three things about this young man become obvious. He's rich, he's respectable, he's religious, which is probably a fair description of a chunk of Western society. 
And then you come to one of the most moving phrases in the entire New Testament. It's verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And you know, that was a penetrating look. Because Jesus had that ability. Jesus could look beyond the surface. So Jesus was able to see into this man's heart. And he could see the, mis- or the imperfections. He could see the misguided priorities. And yet, his heart literally bursts with love for him. It's extreme love. It's actually agape love. It's divine love. It's a giving love. And so Jesus speaks into his life out of love. Please hear this. He speaks into his life out of love. He's not trying to make this difficult. It's because he cares about this young man that he says this. He says, one thing you lack. And again, everybody else around him would have gone, what do you mean, Jesus? This is a young guy who's got everything. What do you mean there's one thing he lacks? And Jesus says, there's one thing you lack. And then he lays down the challenge and he says, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. You see, It actually seems that the radical call of discipleship was for real. Those weren't just nice words from chapter 8. That Jesus was actually inviting people into a way of life. And whenever the man heard this, the blood drained from his face. He was gutted. Because he never expected this level of sacrifice. He didn't anticipate that kind of commitment. And so he turns and he walks away because according to verse 23, he had great wealth. Do you know another one of the interesting things for me? Jesus lets him walk. Not because having money was a problem, but because of the place that it had in this young man's life. Because at the end of the day, what Jesus saw was that money and wealth and possessions and having and his possession were a God. And maybe that's why Jesus missed out the first commandment earlier. That you shall have no other gods before me. It's not because he didn't think the young man wouldn't know it. But the point is, and the point often is, Jesus isn't that interested in what we know. He's interested in how we live. Knowing something intellectually is profoundly different from knowing something experientially. Proof of commitment to Jesus is not necessarily found in what you believe. It's revealed in how you behave. God, you see, it is true. He searches hearts, doesn't search heads. And when the man was gone, Jesus tells the disciples, listen. And before we're too hard on the rich man, I really respect the guy because he wasn't prepared to pretend. And that's a challenge I face sometimes. Am I just pretending? That young guy counted the cost and he said, you know something? I admire you, Jesus, but I'm not prepared to be a follower. But whenever this guy had gone, Jesus makes the point to his disciples that it is hard for the rich man to enter a kingdom of heaven. It's not impossible. He doesn't say it's impossible. He just says it's hard. It's really hard. Because, you see, rich men have to also become like little kids to uh, inherit the kingdom of God. And the thing about little kids is they're dependent. The thing about rich men is they're phenomenally independent. Actually, when all is said and done, Most rich people don't need God. And so the disciples are amazed because as far as they were concerned, you've got to remember in this culture, wealth was generally seen as a reflection of God's pleasure. 
It was a sign of God's blessing. And so Jesus slices through their amazement with a typical and a deliberate overstatement to ram home the point. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But hang on a wee minute. That's impossible. And now we're getting to the heart of it. Because what Jesus goes on to say is this. With man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible. Because you see, salvation really is a God thing. See, left to my own devices, I am focused on me. Daily surrender to self is a million miles off my instinctive radar. Becoming like a little child to enter the kingdom of God is so unnatural to me. It's impossible. But I've got to read these words and I've got to embrace these words. But with God, the possibilities are endless. Because here we have echoes of grace. Even rich men can find what they're looking for if they're prepared to realign their priorities. And Peter, he quickly, he steps in and he makes the point that he says, listen, Jesus, we have left everything. We have abandoned the lot to follow you. And Jesus doesn't deny that, but he simply makes the point that in choosing to follow him, they receive so much now in this present age, but also they receive so much in the age that is to come. You see, Christian discipleship, true Christian discipleship may be costly, but it always delivers the best of both worlds. And in this next incident, Jesus leads the way. We're nearly there. Next, next sentence. Jesus leads the way and he's striding out front according to verse 32. And others are following and they're now on their way to Jerusalem. And what's really interesting is that it says that uh, the disciples were astonished and the followers were afraid. But it doesn't tell us why. It just says Jesus is walking out front. He's on his way to Jerusalem. There's a whole crowd of people following him. But some are astonished and some are afraid. Why was that? Was it because of what they've just heard? Was it because of the implications of what they've just heard? I don't know. Or was it because what they saw in Jesus was a man on a mission? They could have detected in Jesus a change as he now begins to walk towards his destiny. His demeanor, his body language may have been different because Jesus knew what lay ahead of them in these last few days. And for the third time, Jesus then tells the twelve what awaits him in Jerusalem. This is the third time he said this to them. He says, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spat upon. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be killed. And three days later, I'm going to rise. I'm not sure how you react to the cross. But how the disciples react, or certainly how two of them react, is surely a bit disturbing. And I know it must have been hard for them to get their heads around what Jesus has just told them about his imminent future. But their response is startling. Here's what they say. Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. The selfish gene comes to the fore again. And rather than rebuke them, and rather than get indignant this time, which would have been perfectly understandable given the circumstances, Jesus graciously says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And James and John are quick in their response. And they say, let one of us sit in your right and one of us sit in your left in your glory. And you talk about not getting it. 
bearing in mind what Jesus has just disclosed, and as I say, he's just disclosed this for the third time, is it not slightly, just slightly unbelievable that the disciples are still thinking of themselves and are still thinking of personal greatness? And Jesus says to them, do you know, see what you're asking me, guys? This is out of your depth. And he frames his response in a question. He says, can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And we all know that the cup is a reference to suffering. And baptism indicated the depth of the suffering that lay ahead. That Jesus was going to be immersed in suffering. The language and the imagery is vivid. And the suffering of Jesus, yes, on our behalf was unique. But in verse 39, and look at this and please hear this and get your heads around this. As I have tried to get my head around this during the week. Jesus did tell them they would drink the cup. And Jesus told them that they would be baptized with the baptism that Jesus is baptized with. And what Jesus was really saying here is, listen, suffering is inevitable. It's an inevitable dimension of true discipleship. And for those guys, with the passing of time, it did become part of their story. And I do sometimes look at my own life and how comfortable I am. And how little cost is actually involved in following Jesus for me. And I just wonder, have I missed the point somewhere along the line? And Jesus says, listen, it's not up to me to decide where you sit. That's already been sorted. And the other disciples, they're not impressed with James and John as you wouldn't be. And so before another row breaks out, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them again about the nature of and the pathway to true greatness. He says, listen, if you want to be great, please hear this this time. If you want to be great, go serve. And if you want to be first, go and be a slave to all. Again, that just runs completely counterculture to our mindset. Because I want to think about me. I don't want to think about others. I want to look after my own needs and priorities. Instead of actually saying, do you know something, I'm just going to be a slave to you all. The fact that there's no, uh, there's no further recorded comments of the disciples probably indicates that they realize there's nothing more they can say. So have they got it yet? And then we come to the very final incident this morning. And it's the final healing miracle in Mark. And it happens in Jer- Jericho. It's about 15 miles from Jerusalem. And it involves a blind man, Bartimaeus who because of his visual impairment would have been at the bottom of the social scale, little or no place in society, and therefore the only thing that he can do is sit and beg to survive. But although he has no sight, he's been gifted with incredible insight. And we know that because of what he shouts. What he shouts is, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And this is the only time the title Son of David appears in Mark's Gospel because it was an exclusive title that revealed the identity of Jesus Christ. It was an exclusive title that spoke of Jesus' Messiahship, that he was the Anointed One. And it was blind Bartimaeus who recognized this. And people rebuked the old guy and said, look, shut up. But he was persistent and he shouted even louder, it says, because his need of mercy was so tangible that he was not going to miss this opportunity. And Jesus heard him and he called him over. And then that gracious question appears again that he asked the disciples and all they were looking for was greatness. But Jesus this time asked it to an old blind guy, what do you want me to do for you? And what does Bartimaeus say? I want to see. And Bartimaeus does see. 
Not only does he receive renewed physical sight, but he discovers fresh spiritual clarity. And Bartimaeus is a role model for every human being to imitate. And this is where we finish this morning. Because you see, he recognizes who Jesus is, exactly like the rich man. He expresses his need of Jesus, exactly like the rich man. He believes Jesus can help him, exactly like the rich man He's willing to follow because it says immediately after he received his sight, he followed Jesus along the road. And that's the big difference between the blind guy and the rich man. One admired, the other followed. And so it seems, according to Mark chapter 10, that kids and blind beggars provide great role models, whereas rich men and disciples don't always get it necessarily seven questions this morning how do we rediscover a child's ability to receive the kingdom of God what have I done or said thought this week that contradicts the teaching of Jesus how do you determine your priorities in life what is in danger of becoming a God in your life and what do you sense Jesus is saying to you by way of challenge why is suffering an inevitable dimension of discipleship How can we serve others and become a slave to all this week? And then the final question, what do you want Jesus to do for you this morning?